Welcome to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. This week, Philip Edwards explains the symbolism of the furniture in the holy place and how it represents the mind, the will and the emotions of mankind. We hope you enjoy the podcast and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and events. Okay, good to see you all again and uh, some fresh faces, that's good as well, welcome. Uh, we're well into this now and uh, what I'm going to do, uh, as all teachers do, just see what's going in, what we're remembering and so um, if you need to call out, just you can move your master call out, so some of you would like to do that. So uh, this is our plan of the tabernacle, remember? And uh, I've drawn it so many times, you probably can dream about it, like I said. There were three gateways in. Can you remember the names that we gave to the gateways? This one, first of all. Jesus said, I am the... Where? Yeah. I am the... Truth. And I am the... Life. Okay, good stuff. Seven pieces of furniture. This one is the... Yes, it's called, it's called either the, braze, uh, br- uh, the brass altar, the brazen altar, or the bronze altar, uh, because uh, brass and bronze are similar. There's just another element added to it. So that's the altar where sacrifices are made. This is the washing bowl. It's got a name. It's called, yeah, L-A-V-L-A-V-A. Yeah, Lava. This is the... Okay, three three things in here. The first on the right is we put the bread on there. It's the table of showbread. We haven't quite dealt with that. Over here that lights up the whole thing. The menorah. The menorah or the seventh branch candlestick. Okay, and here, that's the golden altar of incense. And in here, the Ark of the Covenant, yes. And above the Ark is a slab of gold called the Mercy Seat. This doorway here has four pillars and they represent what? They're the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one had five pillars, and this represents the fivefold ministries, and that is apostle, prophet, elder, pastor, and teacher, yes. And this has four pillars here. Christ has been made unto us. A bit tricky, this one. Ah, ah. That's down here. Okay. These are made, sorry, yeah. Wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He has made unto us wisdom, holiness, righteousness, and redemption. So our journey is taking us from this, which represents the cross, to the throne room of God. That's our journey so far. We've come through here which is the gateway in, listening to the Gospels. We've stood here and looked at the altar and worked out 
what the altar represents, represents four things to us. Remember what they were? Number one, all our sins are washed away. Number two, he has been made unto us righteousness. So he has exchanged our sin. He became sin. He never sinned. He became sin. He took this motor of sin away so we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The third thing that he is, he's dealt with our sin nature. Remember where our sin nature is? The old goat? It's sandwiched between the righteous heart and the atoning blood of Christ, but we have to reckon our old nature dead. It isn't dead. If you leave it, it'll come up and start to dominate your life. So we have to keep it suppressed down. That's uh, reckon it dead. And the fourth side is that Christ was a burnt offering. In other words, he, he was completely consumed. He died completely. And so we looked at the four aspects of the cross, and of course, we have to adopt all of those into our lives. We have to live knowing that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. All of your sins have already been dealt with by Jesus Christ. He doesn't die again. He's died once and for all, for all your sins. And to have our sins forgiven, we simply, by faith, look to Christ. It is by faith your sins are forgiven. Okay, And we have received this righteousness. It's natural for us to be righteous now. It isn't natural for us to sin. I don't like the terminology, we're sinners, saved by grace. I'd rather say we were saints who slip up now and again. Much more positive way of looking at yourself. Okay, We know that the old sin nature is still alive, and this one we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. It's death, folks. You know that. The message comes across. We have to die to ourselves that the life of Christ will come through. To the extent that you're alive is to the effect of holding Christ from coming forward and living in and through your life. So tonight we're moving on to the laver. The laver, if the cross... If the, if the altar represents the cross, what do you think the laver represents? Two things that are basic to us in the outer court here, where we are affected by sense knowledge. In here, remember, we receive revealed knowledge or revealed truth. Out here, it's the cross that's vital to sense knowledge, and also here, the laver represents the Word of God. The laver is the Word of God. When the priest either went in here to carry on the service of fueling the lamps or doing the bread or burning the incense there on the golden altar, if he passed the laver, he would have to wash both his hands and his feet. If he came out of here, to serve here with the sacrifice of animals and so forth, he had to wash himself again, hands and feet. If he failed to wash himself, he dropped down dead. Okay, so that shows you the importance of the Word of God. The Word of God is life to us. Not to read it is to die. 
If you don't read sufficient of the Word of God, you are slowly dying. If you are not receiving teaching of the Word of God, you are dying. That's what the labor represents to us. Remember Peter said to Jesus once, when Jesus said, are you going to leave me with all the others? Remember what he said? He said, you have the words of eternal life. So to, get, to, to enjoy and to receive more of the eternal life, and eternal life is not living forever, that's everlasting life. Eternal life is the God kind of life, the life that God has. To receive it, we must receive more and more of the word of God. You have the words, he says, of eternal life. Where else shall we go? This laver was made, again from brass, uh, it was actually made from uh, the women's mirrors. They didn't have glass in those days that were silvered on the back. They just had brass or copper, maybe, and they would shine it up, and of course they would see the reflection of themselves in, in this piece of metal. And so Moses asked them, the ladies, to give him all their mirrors. And from their mirrors, he made this laver and the stand of the laver. Let me read that scripture to you. Exodus 38, verse 8. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, it wasn't just something nasty that God was thinking, I'll get all the mirrors off the women so they can't look at themselves. Nothing like that at all. Okay, The word of, the word of God... This is a mirror to your soul. So when you read the word of God, it reflects back to you the condition of your soul. It either says, you look really nice, you're really doing well, you've got that right, or, whoa, there's something wrong here in your soul, and it shines it up. So James tells us this. He said, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like what a stupid thing to do to see that you look all right you look in the mirror seeing that you're not all right you simply walk away and forget what the mirror said so as you're looking at the word of god the word of god reflects what's in your soul and it's talking to you all the time so as you read the word of God it is what are you saying to me God what is your word saying now don't think it's always finding fault if you look pristine and you stand in the mirror you look pristine that's all there is to it it can't find a fault nor does the word of God the word of God is not fault finding when you're ready to receive something from God he will illuminate that part of your life so don't think of yourself, I'm failing all the time, I'm not doing a good job, God doesn't like me. That's, that's counterproductive for growth in Christ. When it's time to see something that's wrong, let God show you. Let God show you from his word what's wrong. Made of brass, we're going to say, or brass in the word of God, it typifies judgment. That's what it's all about. So the washing of the word of God it also as you look at the word of God there is judgment that comes from the word of God sometimes we think of God as being a judge he doesn't want to be seen as a judge he will not judge you 
and he does not judge you. Now, he's had some real bad press, the idea, there's God up there in the sky, and all he's ever doing is passing judgment on you. And lo and behold, if you upset him. It says this in John 5 and 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one. No one. God is not judging you. But he entrusts all judgment to the Son. Well, you say, well, that's a bit better. Uh, I'd rather have Jesus judge me than God judge me. Jesus doesn't judge you either. This is what he says. This is John 12 and 47. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. So the Father's not judging you, and Jesus isn't judging you. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. We can't be both your saviour and your judge. He can't be the one who defends you in the courts of God. He is forever making intercession for you, so he can't be your prosecution. He is your defence. He is speaking up for you. That is why when you sin and do something wrong, we have an advocate before the Father. Because you have faith in Jesus Christ as your advocate and you have faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross, the minute you sin, he inter intercedes for you before the Father because of your faith and God forgives you instantaneously. Now this is hard for some Christians to believe because they believe for God to forgive them, they've got to repent. Come to God and say, God, please, will you forgive me? Well, what if you did something wrong and you didn't know it was wrong? You couldn't repent. And so that sin would be held against you. So that's not why God forgives you. God doesn't forgive you because you say sorry. God forgives you because you put your faith and trust in the death and the resurrection and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he is forever your high priest in the presence of God, making intercession for you. And you think, oh, that's great. I can just sin as I like then. It don't really matter because he's just interceding for me. No, you haven't got salvation then. You've got something else weird. And it's not salvation. Because anyone born again of the Spirit of God so loves God, loves Jesus and what Jesus has done for them, has been so shown the truth by the power of the Spirit of God, he isn't looking to sin. I, if I had a choice, and I have choice, I would never sin again. I wouldn't choose to sin. I would always choose to walk in righteousness, but maybe through fatigue or ignorance or frustration or tiredness or something, I find myself from time to time sinning. But I don't want to sin. I never want to sin. And Christians never want to sin. And God knows that. And your intercessor knows that. And he's forever making petitions before the Father for you on your behalf when you get it slightly wrong. Who then judges us? It's what the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 11.31. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. It's to judge yourself. You're to judge yourself. And you judge yourself by the word of God. We will be judged according to the word of God. 
we have received. See, if I know something is wrong, if I know something is wrong and I do it, it isn't God judging me or even Jesus judging me. The word of God itself is judging me. If the word of God says, you shall not steal and I steal, it is the word of God that judges me. And because I know the word of God, I am the one that judges myself because of my knowledge of the word of God. If I don't know the word of God, then I can't judge myself. Now that has a positive side to it. We will be judged according to the word of God that we have received. So it's best if you don't learn anything, isn't it? That's it. That's logic. Just don't bother learning anything more and you can't be judged. So people who learn a lot and understand a lot, they, they, are, they are pushing themselves closer and closer and closer to God. And it's getting, but that's what you want, isn't it? Don't you want a pure life? Don't you want a life that's free from the sin and, and closer to God? But Because as you get closer, so it becomes somewhat easier as you press on in because the line becomes much narrower. It's a narrow way. There's a broad way and a narrow way. We want to press on in and press on in so we get to the narrow. Yes. Okay, let's pick that point up. Knowing, I would agree with you that he knows with his sense knowledge. Therefore, he has to come to a decision about what he, he knows and understands, whether he believes what you are telling him about Jesus is true. The day he says, I choose to believe that, that's when the Spirit of God comes to him and confirms it. Now, if you're of a different doctrinal background, you would say, oh, no, no, your father can only receive the truth when the Spirit of God reveals the truth to him. Now, that puts the onus on God. That's called Calvinism. My way, or the way that I've just explained to you that I believe, is Arminianism, which is, no, your father can choose whether he wants to be saved or not. But we won't get bogged down in that, please. Let's just move on, okay, across here. See, this is why we should never judge anyone. We should never judge anyone because they can only live according to the word that they have received. Now, I don't know what truth or word that you have received, and so you don't know what I've received. So, for me, God would say, Philip, you should not do that. Let's pick something ridiculous that will upset everyone, but I don't mean to upset everyone, but I just have to do this from time to time. Say I see a Christian that tattoos all his arms with something. Okay, Have I got the right to judge that Christian and say, I don't think you should do that, that's wrong. See, if God has spoken to me and he says to me it's wrong, it's wrong for me. Understand, I mustn't do that because I'm walking with God and I'm dependent on God, if another person does something and God hasn't spoken to them about it, right or wrong or anything else, not that I'm saying I'm right, but I'm only right in what I believe that God has said to me, I can't go judging them. Now, you can apply that to lots of things. Paul applied it to eating meat, remember? 
He said, I can go to the marketplace and I don't, all the meat was offered to idols in those days. He said, I can just buy that meat, take it home, cook it and eat it and I sanctify it by praying for it. But others can't do that. Their conscience doesn't let them do that. So we mustn't judge anyone because we live according to the knowledge that we have received from God, from his word. As we read it, we are to make adjustments to our lives according to what God is saying to you or to me. We make those adjustments. As I read something and I realize and I think, mm, there's something wrong here, I make the necessary adjustments to my life. The laver. Washing us, sanctifying us, changing us. The second thing that we see that the laver did, obviously it was filled with water. If the, the priests would wash themselves, you know, their hands and their feet. So what it says in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. So how does Christ make the church holy? How does he sanctify us? How does he improve us, as it were, improve our characters. He cleanses her by the washing with water through the word. So as you read the word of God, Christ himself applies the word of God to you. And the process that he's doing, he's trying to sanctify you and wash you by his word. Husbands, we are to sanctify our wives by our words. I don't think that's a spiritual exercise. I just think that means we are to speak positively to them. We are to love them. We are to help them. And it might be instruct them, but be very careful, men, how you instruct your wife. Very, very careful indeed, okay? But we, we love, and Christ is very careful with us. He very rarely whacks us around the head. He speaks to us nicely and gently and smoothly and sometimes he has to say it a bit differently, a bit more forcefully because we are making such a mess. He wants to clean us up for our benefits. Sanctification then. It means to be made holy. It depends on both the blood, the cross, and the water that's applied. God's sanctification depends on both the cross and the scriptures. You are redeemed by the blood, but you're not sanctified by the blood. You're sanctified by the word of God. So we come to Christ and we are redeemed by his blood. We are children of God. But unless we press on in or receive good teaching or avail ourselves of what's available, we'll never be sanctified. We'll just be wandering around here. Oh Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. We've got to get away from there. That's no good. We're trying to get into the holiest of holies. We can't hang around the cross too long. Thank God for the cross and all it means, but accept the truth 
and now move on from the cross and everything it means and take on board the word of God so the word of God now can sanctify us and cleanse us and help us to move on in him. 1 John 5, 6 says, This is the one, we know that's Jesus, this is the one who came by water and blood. That is Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So the Spirit testifies that Jesus came by water. He is the great teacher. And Jesus came by blood. He is the only Redeemer. His blood redeems you. His words sanctify you. It all happens out here in the outer court. Insufficient exposure to God's word halts the work of God's sanctification in your life. That's why I said to you, you can't keep going back to church every Sunday and hear about repentance and faith. That, that's dealt with. Let's move on, please, so we can have other teaching that sanctifies us and draws us into the holy place, into the holy holies, as we press on forward in God. Okay, so we've left the outer court, the area of sense knowledge, and we're now going into the holy place. We've said before we're going to appreciate all the ministry of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, sent by God to the church, along with the Holy Spirit, along with our own giftings, to draw us into Christ, to be the people that God is wanting us to be. Everything after the cross now is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. No more sense knowledge, but revealed truth. When you read your Bibles, you can read it with sense knowledge. And it sort of makes some sense. But you know, in everything that Jesus is teaching you here, there is a Holy Spirit that wants to reveal a depth of truth to you, deeper than the uh, surface knowledge of just what we understand with our sense. We have to allow the Spirit, by revealed knowledge, to teach us things. We could have looked at the whole of this with sense knowledge. And just said, oh, this is this, and this is this, and, and this is that. No, we want to know what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us as we look at the tabernacle and all the truth he's trying to reveal to us. And he died for all, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 and 16, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for him, it says. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. When people were on the earth, and Christ was with them, they viewed him in natural, as just in the flesh, as it were, we weren't here when Christ walked on the earth. So now all our understanding of Christ now, because he's come and gone, has to be by the revealed knowledge of the Holy Spirit. 
We are thoroughly dependent on the Holy Spirit bringing the teacher, bringing all the teaching to us. Christ is no longer on the earth preaching to us, but he has sent the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. You need to have a very intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Thank God for Jesus. You have the Spirit of Christ within you, but you need to get very familiar with the one who has come to lead you into all truth, who is the Holy Spirit. So just one way in which we can become really familiar with the Holy Spirit. How can we do that? I told you. Yeah, thank you very much. Speaking in tongues. Well, I don't get it. Of course not. If you think about sense knowledge, you go, I don't get it. In fact, I don't get anything about God much. I don't get it. If you try and analyse the things of God with sense knowledge, you don't get it. He said here, we no longer judge after the flesh, only after the spirit. So that if the word of God says, listen, speak in tongues all the time, you better do it. You go, well, no, I haven't worked out why. Well, you can read why and the Holy Spirit will reveal to you why. Paul says, when I don't know what to pray, I allow the Holy Spirit to pray through me because the Holy Spirit in me knows the very mind and purposes of God, so I allow him to pray through me. In any situation where you don't know what to pray, which is most of the situations, you pray in other tongues. Because the Spirit himself makes intercession for the saints. He's interceding for you. And the more you allow him freedom and liberty in your life, the closer you get to him, the more intimate it becomes the more you understand what he's saying and what he's trying to lead you into. So we move from sense knowledge to revelation knowledge. There are three functions in this place here. This is relating to our soul, so I've made a much bigger picture here. So we've got the candlestick. We've got the table. And we got the altar. There's two altars. That's the golden altar of incense. Uh, that's the brass altar of well, sacrifice. So we're going to consider these three pieces of furniture tonight. And then after that, of course, next week, we go into the holiest of holies. So we're going to consider these three pieces of furniture. And we're going to relate them to the soul of each one of us. And our soul is made up of three parts. Nice and loud. Uh, uh, the soul, the inside of the soul is made up of three parts. It can't be the body, because that's the outside. My, uh, intellect, mind, will, and emotion. We're going to say they're the three parts of the soul. I gave you a verse in Thessalonians that directed you to that. We, we break everything up as a model to teach, but the reality is... We can't. We're, we're whole. We're, we're body, soul, and spirit. And we are 
it's all it's all together. I can't separate the whole thing out, but we do for, for teaching purposes. So this this represents your soul, the three parts. This represents your mind, your will, and your emotions. And we can learn about how we are to function in our soul area now for the rest of this evening. The primary part of the soul is not the emotions. We know if we're led by our emotions, we're going to get in the right mess. Up and down. Useless. Okay. We're not led by our intellect. I know some real smart people that do some really stupid things. So we must be led by, this must be the strongest part in us. This is the strength of the soul, which is our will. We will to do the word of God. We will to walk as Christians. We will to be obedient to him. Then my emotions have to come into line and my intellect has to come into line with me putting my will to move forward in God. Here, on this table here, were placed six uh, loaves of bread down here, four, five, and six, and six down here very orderly, set in line on the table. It is called the table of showbread. It was always on show for the Lord. Other names for it was the bread of the face, literally translated, and another one was the bread of his presence. The, the bread had to be there constantly on that table, it was being very special bread because after it had been there a week, the priests would take it off and eat it. Mm. So it must have been slightly different bread from what we have today because you wouldn't have it hanging around for a week, then eat it. So it, they did. It, none of it was wasted and it was sanctified. So God had obviously done something or there was something in the bread that, that kept it that way. Now the bread that's on the table, the table of showbread, the bread in scripture represents the strength within us. So your will is the strongest thing. Have you ever had a strong-willed child to deal with? Wow, they are difficult. We had a strong-willed child. We had four. One was really strong. Oh, I won't tell you which one it is. It's not fair. But I tell you, stubborn, terrible. But you see... A strong will. Now, a strong will for the devil is terrible, but a strong will for God is wonderful. And so we have to develop a strong will according to God's word. So the strength of the soul is not the intellect or the passion or emotions. A better word for emotion is passion. Passion, that driving force within you. So instead of mind, will, and emotion, let's say will intellect and passion okay now i'm sure i'll slip into the other one from time to time please forgive me so i'm really talking about my will my intellect and my passion when i talk about my soul there was a, a preacher once called charles finney some of you might have a great evangelist i mean just fantastic few hundred years ago now but he said this he says i'm not preaching to affect your emotions I'm preaching to affect your will. See, 
If you have someone who can stir up your emotions, we all like those preachers, don't we, from time to time? Yeah, woo, 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 you know. And then as soon as the message is over and we make a cup of tea and we say, what did he say? What was all that about? It was great, wasn't it? Yeah, of course it was great because he stirred your emotions and you responded accordingly. But Finney said, I don't want to stir your emotions. I want to touch your emotions. I want your passion to get involved in this. I want your intellect to be engaged in this, but I want to get your will so that when I finished, you get up and say, I'm going to do that, or I'm not going to do that, because he's so ministered to your will. That's the most important part. That's the strongest thing. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, when they went into the Promised Land, they were all given um, a, a piece of land, a piece of property. It was just given to them. They, they occupied the Promised Land. It was all divided up between uh, the different tribes, and they were given a plot of land. On that land, they would usually plant grain or corn that would produce bread for them. They would... Uh, uh, plant an olive grove so they could have oil and they would also plant a vineyard so they would have vines and, um, and grapes. And this is what it says in Joel 2 and 19. I am sending you grain, new wine and oil enough to satisfy you fully. So the three parts here are represented in what the farmer used to plant. And God knew if he prospered you as a farmer, you'd sit back and you'd look at your vines and thinking, wonderful, tremendous harvest of grapes. You'd look at your olive groves and say, yes, we've got loads of olive oil here. And you would look at your grain fields and think, yes, we can make lots of bread or whatever we're going to make from the grain that we've got. These represent the three. This is the wine, talking of our passion. This is the strength, the bread. And of course, this is the oil. It took oil to burn these. And so this is to do with the intellect. So he says, if I can feed your intellect, and if I can feed your passion, and if I can feed your strength and your will, and you dedicate them all to me, you'll be satisfied. He wants you satisfied. I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. That's what God wants. He wants you to be passionate about him. He wants you to be hungry to understand the truth of God's word and he wants you to have a strong will to be determined to go on in him. Hebrews 10, 5 and 7 says this, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. Have you ever wondered about that? You thought, I thought God did want sacrifices and offerings. Jesus said, no, you didn't want that. What do you want then? But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased, just in case you didn't get it. He didn't want burnt offerings and sin offerings. He didn't want all that offered up to him all the time. Then I said, 
Here I am. It is written about me in the scrolls. I have come to do your will, O God. It's good that you pray. It's good that you worship. It's good that you praise. But you can do all that and not give him your will. He says, to be honest, I'm not interested in your prayers. I'm not interested in your praise songs. I'm not interested in your times of worship. If when you get up and walk away, your will is not to do the will of God, it means nothing to me. Remember Isaiah 58, Oh Lord, we have fasted all day and we've made all these declarations to you. He said, you're terrible people. He says, do you think fasting is for a day? He said, no, it's to look after the poor and needy and homeless and all those things. You know that passage of scripture too, well, Isaiah 58. God is looking for your will to do the will of God. He loves it when you sing a song, I understand that, when you worship him and when you pray. But to do those things and not follow his will, he goes, it means little to me that you say those things to me. So what purpose then do we have a body? What a weird question, Phil. You've just got a body. What's your body for? Is it to serve the Lord? Jesus said, didn't he? He said, he said a body you have prepared for me. Well, if, if God prepared a body so Jesus could enter into it, he also prepared this body so another child of his, Philip, could enter into it and I live for him. The purpose of me having a body is that I would do the will of God. Not to do it, I would never be happy, never be satisfied. If God has given me a teaching gift, I must teach, I must. And so he's given me a body with these different parts that I can do the will of God and all the other things. Love my neighbour, be nice to my family, be kind to them, look after the poor and needy. He's given me a body that I might do the will of God. If you see God's will, you will have discernment. If you seek your will, you will be misguided. Always, always, always. Because you're looking after your own ends. And God says, that's wrong. I've got to come first. My consideration is what's important. And then you will always be guided by me. And Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember? He goes there and he says to the apostles that were there, pray. He said, pray, because I'm going in to pray with my father. And then as he prays there, remember what his prayer was. Not what I will, Lord, but as you will. Did Christ want to die on a cross? The human part of Christ did not want to die. If you say to me, Phil, you've got an option tonight, I either kill you now or you can live. I'll live. 
There is something within the human nature that wants to know, unless life is so desperate, I understand that, I'm sensitive towards people when they get to that sort of place. But generally speaking, we want to live. Jesus wanted to live. He said, Father, is there another way that we can do this thing without me dying? I love that because it's his, he wasn't being weak or lacking in faith. He was just, that was his human side coming out. The man, Christ Jesus, the man was going to die on the cross. Yes, he was the Son of God, but he was going to die as a man on the cross. And his humanity was seen there. Then he goes out and he finds them sleeping, remember, and he comes back again. And he says this time, May your will be done. That's it. A body you have prepared for me that I might do the will of God in my life. That's why when you're doing anything else, there's no joy or peace or satisfaction because God created you to do the will of God. We need to know what God's will is for our lives. But if you're not surrendering You'll never know. Present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Then you will know what his will is. His good, his pleasing and perfect. So without the giving of yourself in sacrifice to God, you will never know the will of God for your life. It's like a catch-22, nasty one, isn't it? I want to know the will of God, then I'll go ahead and do it. He said, no, you lay your life down first to me, give yourself wholly to me, then I'll tell you what your will is, my will for your life is. You don't get it otherwise. Six successive features then, to be applied to your will in relationship or represented through the bread. So we're going to think of bread, how you make bread, what they did with the bread, in relationship to your will. Firstly, bread is made of flour, basically, fundamentally. How is flour produced? It's ground, isn't it? Ground and ground and ground until it's really fine. The bruising of your will. You've had some of that, haven't you? Where he comes and smashes you, and smashes you. Oh, he does it so well. He's God. But you know when he's done it. You know when you've resisted and he's just ground you down. And he goes, I've got all the time in the world. And you're thinking, I'm getting old and I, I'm not going to fulfill my dreams and visions. He says, no, you're not. I'm going to grind you down so that you want to yield yourself to my will. And he says, then I'll make you into dough and I'll knead you and knead you and push you into the mould that I want you to be designed by God. And he says, when I've got this, what will I do with it then? I'll stick it in the oven. Oh, you thought it was bad enough being ground and moulded, but now he's putting you in the oven, tested by fire, everything goes wrong. Have you shouted at God? I thought you told me to do this. I'm moving in the direction that you've said, and now it's all going wrong. Oh, poor you. We've all been there. 
and you'll go there again and again and again. It's painful, you see. Now, you can opt out whenever you like. No, no, no. We are not of those that pull back and are lost. We are are those who push on in to everything God has got for us. In the fire, everything, everything goes wrong. Then we're cooked. So he places us here, orderly, on the table. Here, orderly, on the table. God loves a bit of order in our lives. Now, I understand to some people order, it's very easy. To others, it's painful. See, we're all at different places and we all have different giftings and graces. So some people don't mind being pummeled and ground and some people hate it. Some people don't mind the fire. Other people hate it. Some people don't like being put in a nice orderly line. It's called discipline. There's a bit of a clue here because we're called to be his disciples. So there's got to be a bit of discipline, a bit of order to our lives. Especially in the West, none of us want discipline. This COVID thing proves it, doesn't it? No one's going to tell us what to do. We'll even run around and give everyone the disease. It doesn't matter. But no, he says, listen, just obey the rules. Do what you're supposed to do. We're a free country. All right, kill yourselves then. We must have the discipline. We must have the order. And with the things of God, there must be discipline in our lives. There must be order. And, and, and so you start and then you fall down. So you start again. You keep bringing discipline and order into your life until it becomes a way of life. He then would take frankincense and cover the bread with frankincense. It was a type of worship. Obviously, it was the aroma. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm pleased to do your will. It doesn't matter what it is, Lord. I'm pleased to do it. thought how Joseph, sorry, wrong one. I couldn't do Joseph, but I'm not going to do Joseph, because this one's even worse. Moses. Moses was described as what? The most humblest of men. Where did he learn that humility? I tell you, it weren't in Egypt. It was in the desert. Forty years doing nothing on his own in the desert after the 40 years that he had been in the house of Pharaoh with everything just so fast and moving and he had God said to get you to the place where you will do anything I tell you to do I've got to take you into the desert for 40 years have you ever been in the desert wow just that place of loneliness where nothing is going on And you say, God, don't you know the time's going, the time's going, the years are passing by, and he says, I've got all the time in the world. 
I could do in the last five years of your life so much. And yet we wait patiently for the Lord. Lord, your will, not mine. I told you when I came here, I wanted to start a Bible school on day one. There's nothing else I can do. I sat for three years until God says, we can go now. We can go now. You have to be patient, you see, with stuff. And the last thing about the bread, like I said, it was perpetually there on the table. Our will is always before the Father. Not my will, Lord, your will. Not my will, your will. Not my will, your will. Whatever you want, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. Now we move to the seventh branch candlestick. You doing all right? Yes? Yeah, smashing, good stuff. Okay. We'd normally have a break now, but there we go. We've got to push on tonight. Sorry about that. The lampstand typifies, as I said to you before, that's our intellect. The oil feeds that, and that's the oil of the Spirit speaking about our intellect. These two uh, items of furniture in the holy place, they were made from poured gold. Uh, you can imagine the table was just the legs and everything, and this, this altar, quite a high altar, this was all poured gold. This was made from hammered gold. So the goldsmiths, empowered by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, took the gold and they beat it, they beat it into shape. Beating indicates the divine workmanship in your life. Jesus himself disciples you. No one else disciples you. He uses other people to disciple his people. But Jesus takes upon himself the responsibility of discipling every convert that ever comes to him. He personally disciples each one of us. A process of shaping and hammering, shaping and hammering. Two things we need here. We need study and discipline in our lives. Study and discipline. How much should you study God's Word? How much do you study God's Word? Let me tell you what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. I don't mean that to you personally. He's talking to these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, this is, it's believed Paul, but it might be someone else, no one knows. But he's saying, listen, you're being slow to understand. You're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time, you ought to be teachers. They should have been teachers, he's saying to them. You should be teachers by now. You need someone to teach you again the elementary truths of God's word all over again. So they were told it, and they didn't continue adding to what they knew. They just drifted, and they lost what they did have. He said, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk 
being still an infant is not acquiring is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Without studying and knowing the word of God, we will not even distinguish the difference between good and evil. That's scary. I've heard some Christians say some real weird stuff. They turn white into black and black into white. They come out with some real crazy stuff and they say God told them it when his word says the opposite. This thing about we should all be teachers, what on earth does that mean? Are you all expected to stand up here and proclaim the gospel to everyone, to teach everyone? I don't think it means that. There are teachers that he has placed within the church. They are a gift from Christ. But he says you should all be able to teach. That means you should know something sufficiently well enough from the Word of God that you could sit down with another Christian who was younger than you and explain to them the truth from God's Word. And he tells us what the elementary teachings are. We've looked at these already. Repentance, faith, the baptisms in the Spirit, the laying on of the hands, the resurrection of the dead and judgment. Could you do that? Could you sit down with somebody and say, let me explain to you what the resurrection of the dead is all about. Could you explain to them what the judgments are all about? You say, well, I'm not sure I can, Phil. We should be able to. You say, well, that's, that's hard work to do all that studying. He hammers it into shape. Oh, it takes application to understand the truth of God's word. And we've grown up in churches where we've been told some lies and they are firmly established in our head and we think, oh my life, I've got to get rid of this one before I can get this truth in. But that's true of all growing up. We have to sometimes push things aside, like I've said earlier, to take new stuff on. I went to university. I wasn't smart. In fact, I went after I left school. I went to technical college to be a technician. I thought all clever people went to university. Only 10% of the population went to university in those days. I think about 50% go now. I thought, oh, I would never go to university. That's what clever people do. And I went on this technical course, and the guy said to me, you know, if you get good enough grades on this technical course, you can go to university. I thought, you're joking. Until I saw what he was saying was true. So I thought, oh, I'll have a go at this. Because I could see by going to university, it was going to be easier because I only had to work for six months, then go to college for six months, and I fancied that. And so I went to university, and I studied. Oh, it was so hard. I was right about my first assessment. I was thick. I was thick, without a shadow of a doubt. Well, all I cared about at school was girls, rugby, and motorbikes. No wonder I was thick. You understand? I didn't care about studying. I got sort of like three O levels or something, you know. I mean, that was better than none, I know. But I thought, I'm going to do this and do this. And I beat my head. And I beat my head until I passed. And I got my degree. 
The day I got my degree, I was a civil engineer. I left civil engineering, never to do it ever again. All that studying was a total waste of time. Well, it was because I was never going to be a civil engineer again. But I said to God, why did you put me through that? He said, because I wanted to get this to work. I wanted to get your head to work, Philip. You were ill-disciplined, and I needed to discipline you because one day I was going to get you to read and study the Word of God until you had it down, nailed down, so you could get up and teach other people what the Word of God... So thank God for that. Thank God for the British education system. Sorry, civil engineering, I didn't do you any good at all, but it was for the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish, we do this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. You must know what Christ thinks to get your thoughts into line with what Christ's thoughts are. And if you've got something up here that doesn't line up with this here, you pull it down and you replace it with something else. You say, that sounds like hard work. It is. Sometimes I've read a book. I think there's truth in here, but I didn't get it. So I read the book again. So I read the book again. You go, that's exhausting. And I read slowly. Daphne says to me, Philip, how does it take you so long? I said, because I'm trying to taking every word that's on this page, so I'm bashing my head so it gets hold of the truth. Sometimes I wish I was brighter and smarter like some people are. They read it once and they've got it all. Mm, that's not me. So if it's not you, don't worry about that. God will take the simple-minded people and teach them the Word of God but you won't get it lying on a sunbed. Some stuff you do, but there has to be the discipline. Psalm 119, 130 says this, the unfolding of the word gives light. Light, the unfolding of the word gives light. It gives understanding, I love this, to the simple. I'm simple. I really am simple. I wouldn't have to read it so many times if I wasn't simple. But as we discipline ourselves, the Word of God can go in. It's not a question of natural intelligence. You <laughs> say, so, well, I'm not very bright. It's not a question of that. It says the simple. You can be as simple as can be. You see, you're making an excuse for yourself. It doesn't wash with God. He says, listen, this isn't about intellectual understanding. This is about application and discipline and allowing the Spirit of God to reveal truth to you. But you have to stay with it until it becomes revelation to you. Spiritual understanding. You know, there were a number of great preachers in our history that could not read. I've mentioned Smith Wigglesworth before, didn't I? Smith Wigglesworth couldn't read. His wife taught him to read. And the only book he ever read was the Bible, a New Testament. 
I know some funny stories about Smith Wigglesworth because uh, Daphne's grandfather had Smith Wigglesworth stay in his house. And my father heard Smith Wigglesworth preach several times in the church that I grew up at. Uh, and so he was a very eccentric man. If you, were, if, he, if you invited him to your house and you all sat around the table and you all started chit-chattering okay, about any old thing, he would have a little New Testament in his waistcoat pocket. He would get it out and he would, with this loud, booming Yorkshire voice, read the Bible. Well, of course, you all shut up. Okay? Then he'd put it back in his pocket again. That was him. He read no other book, it says, apart from the Bible. I don't know whether I would have got on quite well with Smith, but, you know, interesting little stories. Philippians 2, 5 says this, Your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's it. We have to read this for it to reflect on our soul, to know what our attitude should be like. And it should be like Christ. Christ humbled himself. It goes on in that passage. Remember? He humbled himself to take on the nature of a servant and to die on a cross. We get spiritual understanding when we humble ourselves. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Be transformed, it says in Romans 12 and 2, by the renewing of your mind, not by intellect, but by the Spirit coming to your mind and giving you truth. Jesus then sets the pattern for our intellect. He sets the pattern. I don't think he went to university. I don't think he had a degree. He probably only had formal education to the age of 12. And he didn't pursue to follow a rabbi. I don't believe he did. There's nothing that indicates he did or he didn't. He went into his father's business, which 12-year-old boys would have done, unless you were really smart and you could have gone further to follow a rabbi. But he didn't do that. So the Holy Spirit then brings revelation to our mind. It says in Revelation 1.4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne. So, seven? What are these seven spirits? Surely there's only one spirit, the Holy Spirit. What's the seven spirits business? Revelation 4.5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Yes, of course, there's only one Holy Spirit. But it's a bit like light. And of course, we know the light brings revelation. But we know light is divided into seven colours. When you look through out of a window and it's raining and you're looking through the rain, you see a rainbow, the seven colours. In your physics lessons, remember when you've got a prism and you shot light into it, phew, seven colours 
came off the other side. That's my menorah. I'll show you what the seven spirits are. Wisdom. Well, if we take the one up the middle, that's the spirit of the Lord. Then it divides into three either side. Wisdom, power, knowledge, the fear of the Lord, the counsel of God, and understanding. As you look at this, you see there's something of a balance here. We see that for us to operate by the wisdom of God, he has made unto us holiness, wisdom, righteousness and redemption. To operate in the Holy Spirit's revelation of the wisdom of God, we must have understanding. See, it, it marries up with this one. We must have understanding for God to give us wisdom. It just doesn't plop wisdom down. You say, well, if I ask God, he'll give me wisdom. He expects you to have understanding. He wants to operate his power through you. But he says, listen, to operate in the power of the Spirit, you must operate in the counsel of God. God must tell you how to operate. Jesus said, I do nothing unless my Father tells me to do it. I don't raise the dead or heal the sick or cast out demons. or I don't do this unless I have received the counsel of God. Uh, knowledge. Oh, to have the knowledge. Well, he said, to have knowledge, you must have the fear of the Lord. Because if God just poured knowledge into you without the fear of the Lord, you would be not a very nice person. If you had the power without the counsel of God, Oh, you'd run amok, without a shadow of a doubt. You'd be impossible to live with, unbearable. And if you had the wisdom without the understanding, oh, nobody would want to know you. They'd want to get things from you, but they wouldn't want to know you. See, so this stuff is vital to get this stuff. And they are different elements of the Spirit of God. The illuminating of the intellect depends upon the yielding of our will. That's it. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To know what God's saying, we must come with humility. He doesn't talk to proud people. He doesn't talk to stiff-necked people or arrogant people. He doesn't. It would be dangerous. The illuminated intellect always reveals the condition of the will. James 3.13, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. I know how to get to the top of this Christian life. I know how to get up there. It's to go down. It's to go down. The only way up 
is down. If you reach to go higher, you'll get nothing. You go lower. And God raises us up. Jesus went all the way from heaven. Philippians 2, remember, he went all the way to the bottom. And it says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. I want to be at the highest place. Of course, we should all want to be in the highest place that we can. The way is down. The world is opposite, isn't it? We trample over everyone to get up the top, push everyone out the way. That's got to be wrong. All my life, I've only just worked this out. I felt inadequate. Oh, you poor old soul, should have got some deliverance, Phil. No, no, no. I've got plenty of deliverance, don't worry about that. I never thought I was good. No, I could, I could look back at things and think, well, I got that degree, didn't I? I think it was a fluke, you see. I think it was a fluke. <laughs> don't be stupid. I just don't give them away. It wasn't a fluke. When I was playing sport, I reached quite a high place for me, but I never thought I was really that good to be there. Isn't that interesting? Now, I've looked at this recently and I thought, that's the work of God's grace in my life. See, he's got to keep us humble even when he exalts us to the highest position. You see, Christians on pinnacles, we shouldn't put them there because they might believe what you tell them. You understand? They just might believe what you tell them. And that's a terrible place to be. It's good to compliment someone if they've done something good. But I tell you, if you ever paid me a compliment, before the day's over, I'm going to God and said, that was you and not me. I know that was you and not me because if you left me to my own devices I couldn't have done that. That's you. That's you. Now that doesn't mean I count myself as rubbish or no good because it doesn't stop me doing things but it, I want to keep myself walking in humility because I want the best. I want the best. So whatever this Bible school developed into, I would never feel adequate. I don't even feel adequate now because I know my dependence is on God. And if, if one night he says, Phil, I'll just show you how much it depends on me, I would speak for 15 minutes and you'll be going... <laughs> and I'd say, what's gone wrong? He says, because you think you're good. But it's me operating through your life that makes everything work. Now that's everything. Everything. From serving tea to people to just drawing alongside someone and listening to them. It takes the grace of God to do that. 
And when I find myself in a place where God doesn't want me to be, it is so irksome. Sometimes we've got to do those things because they have to be done within the body of Christ. But you know when it's right and you can operate into it. Are you doing all right? Because I'm pressing on a bit longer. I don't want you to miss anything here. We're going, oh, come back here. We've done the old menorah. We're going here now to the golden altar. This was, it was about so, and this tall. It was quite high, the golden altar of incense. And on it would be fire, and, the, and they would make a special resin, a mixture of herbs that couldn't be used and spices for anything else. And it was special for the Lord. And it would burn on here. And it would be an aroma that would go to God. And it speaks of our emotion or our passion and that which, which is essential to, to, to motivate us and drive us forward. Yes, we need our wills in the right direction. We need to be hearing from the Holy Spirit to, to teach us what we need to know. We no longer follow our sense knowledge. We need the, the revelation of the Spirit. But we need a passion to go forward. The golden altar then typifies our passion. I want to talk about some features relating to this. It's four square. It's balanced. Balanced isn't 50% of truth and 50% of lies. 50% of positive and 50% of negative. That's not balance. It's four square. It's balanced. It's not given to excess. Are you given to excess in your passion? It's no good. It's no good. You have to rein that in a little bit. Rein in and try and be balanced. That's not being miserable or being a realist. Passionate, but don't let it run away with you. There are protective crowns around here. You can imagine there were little crowns all the way around, two rows of them, because there was fire and stuff. It would all spill over the edge. So the crowns was like a lip that kept it all on the top there. Self-control. You need to be passionate, but self-controlled. Not up one day and down the next. Up one day, that's exhausting. Just be steady, passionately steady, Oh, Daphne says, you're always the same. She'll say, how did it go tonight? Oh, I said, it was great. Oh, you're always the same. You're always the same. You don't... I want to be the same. I don't, want to, I don't want to dive down in the depths and then be screaming my head off the next minute. I just want to be passionate and move forward. The fire... The intensity that burns within. Intensity and purity. The passion of the soul. Are you red hot for God? I mean for God. Not for ministry. Not for service. Are you red hot for God? His reputation. The incense speaks about our devotion 
our devotion. We must have the fire. Without the fire, there's no fragrance. It's just a resin. But once you put the fire, it starts to let off a beautiful aroma. The incense. See, it's the fire in your life. It's the trials that come that show where you are in Christ. See, if you dive into the slough of despond, that's not good. You've got to keep steady, steady, steady. Then the smoke, the aroma, it's our adoration. Remember that story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Oh, it's such a beautiful picture. Let me read it to you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devoted and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. It was though God was, What's going on? He could smell something good arising from the earth. And when he looked, it was Cornelius, a God-fearer, who was not born again. None of his family were born again, but he feared God. And as this man prayed and gave things to the poor, it was though what he was doing was a sweet aroma that caught the nostrils of God. And he says, I'm going to do something for this man. Our lives need to be a sweet aroma for God. He goes, Neil's at it again. Richard's at it again. Simon's at it again. A sweet aroma. The horns, sanctified by the blood, purified on the day of atonement. Little horns on each corner, sanctified. This piece of furniture was higher than any of the other pieces of furniture. And what we find is the height of this When we draw back this curtain next week, we will see an ark, the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat, and two angels covering the ark. And the height of this was the same height as the angels that were above the mercy seat. It was that high. It is our adoration of God that takes us into the very presence of God. Do you adore God? Do you adore him? When we read the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, this is definitely in this room. Read it in Hebrews. It's moved. It's in here. How's it got from here to here? From the Old to the New Testament? How did it do that? 
this, our adoration, our passion, takes us into the presence of God. The point of transmission from soul to spirit, from service to worship. Praise is an utterance. It is a response to God's love. We praise God because we realize how lovely he is. Worship is an attitude of response to his righteousness. With praise, we rush to God. With worship, we fall back in adoration. Will you know the day when your church has broken through in worship? I'll tell you what it looks like. Everyone flat out on the floor saying nothing. See, we make a lot of noise because we're praising God and there's nothing wrong with that. Keep praising. But what if God walked into the room one Sunday morning? What if he walked into your church? You would sh- You wouldn't say another word. You would know that the position that you took was face down on the floor. I'm going to finish tonight with a revelation that God gave me about the Father, the Son and the Spirit. I was in a meeting and we were worshipping God and uh, later on when the preacher came to preach he couldn't open his mouth and say anything because of the presence of God in that place. He just couldn't. Well, he started, and somehow the Bible just, it went out of his hands. And he didn't try and pick it up and preach on, he stopped. But it was in that meeting God gave me some revelations. As I was worshipping God, I saw a ladder going up into heaven. And I just knew that I was to ascend the ladder. And as I climbed the ladder, and I got into the porthole of heaven, as it were, I saw Jesus. And he turned to me. And he spoke, but he never said anything. He spoke, and I heard it in my head. I think in the next world we'll speak without bothering to exhaust ourselves, moving our tongues and lips. Anyway, moving on. I think that, so you can do what you like with that. But but as I looked at Jesus, he said to me, Philip, why haven't you done what I've told you to do. And I thought, well, I got a rebuke from Jesus himself, but I didn't feel bad. See, I don't mind how many times Jesus tells me off because he loves me. He loves me so much. He can tell me off as much as he likes. He said, Philip, why haven't you done what I've told you to do? Nothing. Nothing else. And I thought, I'm going to do what you want me to do without a shadow of a doubt. He spoke. 
he reflected something in my soul and I needed to deal with that. So I came down and as I was worshipping God, I saw myself building a brick wall. Have you ever built a brick wall? It's all right if you're a bricklayer. If you're not, it's disastrous. I'm, I'm mixing mortar and I'm lying it and the bricks are not only going like this, but they're going like this as well at the same time. And I've only laid six of them and it's a disaster. And, and the, the Spirit of God said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm building the temple of God. He goes, I don't need you to build anything for me, Philip. He said, I've sent the Holy Spirit to build the temple of God. Take a step back. And as I stepped back, I saw like it was like a cloud of something just moving, moving in the air. And it was coming. And I thought, I'll help. I'll go get some water. I can do that. I can't make a mess of that. I can carry water. He says, Philip, I don't even need you to carry water for me. And as I stood back, I saw this edifice rise before me. Right up. It looked like St. Paul's Cathedral. The Holy Spirit had built the temple of God. And I just stood there. I had a third vision. So I've already been told off twice, haven't I? Once by Jesus and once by the Holy Spirit. And I realized I was in the presence of God. And you know, I knew what to do. The only thing possible was to fall on the floor flat and say nothing, shut up. And I lay there on the floor. And God give me a vision as I laid on the floor. I saw myself standing up, but not now in the presence of God. So it was a vision in a vision, and I was standing, and the ocean was here. The ocean, the vast ocean. And I had in my hand a teaspoon, and I put it into the water, and I lifted it up, and I had this tiny little teaspoon of water. And he said, Philip, That's how much you know about me. Wow. Wow. I'd been a pastor by that time for 14 years. I thought I knew something. I was 40 odd years of age. See, I got told off again. By God. But not told off. And even if it was, I didn't care. Because they loved me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit passionately loved me. And I passionately loved them. And as I lay then on the floor, this is really weird. Sorry about this. I had a picture of me being intimate with my wife. I'm sorry about that. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But the story's lost if I don't say that. And I'm lying there in the presence of God and I'm thinking, no, no, that should not be in my head in the presence of God for one second. And then it sort of drifted away. See, God gives us pictures because pictures we hold. Words, we'd lose them. That's why prophets get pictures, imagery all the time. We can hold a picture We can hold a picture inside, but we can't hold words. But as you go away, you ask about the picture. And I said, God, what was all that about? 
He said, Philip, it's not what you do for me. It's not so much who you are in relationship with others. Of yes, do what I say. Yes, uh, respond to the Spirit. But he said, you know what I really want from you? I want you to love me. I want you to be intimate with me. Above everything else, I just want you to come into my presence and love me. And I want to love you. I want to be your God. And I want you to want me to be your God. And I will come and dwell in the midst of you. That's what he wants. <laughs> it's not what you do for him. Oh, keep doing. Please keep doing. The church would fall apart if you didn't keep doing. I get that. But that's not the priority. Don't think I've done this and I've done that and I've done the other. He wants you to love him. When I'm preparing, I have to stop and just sit and say, God, I love you. I love you. Help me. I love you so much. So much. That's what he wants, you see. That's what he wants. Next week, we go in to the very presence of God, where all he wants is you in his presence. God bless you. God bless you. You know, I'm conscious I didn't pray when I started. We don't have to pray, but I want to thank God tonight. God, God, thank you. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. Passionately loving us. Passionately drawing us to yourself and wanting to do so many precious, wonderful things in our lives. Let us catch a vision and a glimpse as we apply ourselves to the Word of God so we become the people that you want us to be. A body you created for us by which we might do the will of God and love you. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's teaching. If you would like to give a donation to Arise Ministry, please head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can give online securely. Also, please remember to sign up to our next module which begins on the 19th of October, Receiving God's Best. This will be one you don't want to miss, so please head on over today and sign up for that module whether you want to join us in person or online. Thank you very much and we hope to see you at the next Arise Bible Academy teaching. Mm-hmm.